another episode of this Grand Compass podcast. Uh, uh, this time, um, I'm very excited to have uh, Beatrice Villarreal. She's a postdoctoral researcher. She's with the Galileo Project, which I'm excited to talk to her about. She's out searching for potentially missing stars, or we don't know exactly what they, they are, but things that have gone missing in the sky. Uh, so thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. The reason I try to have scientists and you know uh, researchers on the podcast, even though it's a Masonic podcast, is um, because you know Freemasons are always encouraged to, for things like lifelong learning and the liberal arts and sciences. Um, you know, what is it um, that got you yourself interested in you know exploring the universe, uh, astronomy? Um, and just, you know, space and, and, and searching for, for, well, in the case of the Galileo Project, right? Searching for, for extraterrestrial artifacts and just the, what is it about the universe that excites you so much? Well, actually, I didn't start off as an uh, astronomer. I started off in molecular biology a long, long time ago. And I was, um, well, I really enjoyed molecular biology as well. But then as I kept thinking and I kept being curious, I first was very curious about how, how can like proteins fold so inst instantaneously into always the same shapes. Uh, I was very stuck. And then somehow I started getting interested into galaxy evolution. And that drove me away from molecular biology on my fourth year of my studies in astronomy. So it hasn't been always a clear path. I'm a very curious person and I always ask more and more questions. And once I start thinking about something, I have to solve it before I can move on. And naturally, like I've been asking questions about life, if, if there's life out there, if there's any intelligent life, it's kind of emerged as a consequence of always asking myself new and new questions. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's one of the most important things, most important questions to answer if there's any intelligent civilization other than uh, us humans. You are involved with, um, you know, a few different projects, but one of them that um, I think you're, you're well known for uh, is, is the Vasco project. So can you tell us about what that project is and what you're looking for with that project? So the Vasco project is um, in the Vanishing and Appearing Sources During a Century of Observations project, which is my main project, uh, where we are, we are looking for things that might have vanished from our sky. And the goal is to find really exotic phenomena, weird anomalies, and hopefully a star that has vanished. Because we know nowadays that if, if a star dies, it usually like um, explodes in a bright supernova or it uh, undergoes a very, very slow change that can take billions of years from being a into a white one. But the star never, or almost, or from what we know, stars do not just vanish. And um, so this is something we have been uh, looking for for a while. Now we have uh, undertaken the mission to look for the stars that vanish in order to know whether whether it could happen, because there are some uh, physical theories that describe that if you have stars in a certain mass range, they might maybe be able to collapse directly into a black hole. And also it has been hypothesized that uh, vanishing stars could be an um, indicator of extraterrestrial civilizations, which is very exciting for us also to look into. And that is why we are so interested in the stars that vanish. 
So that is my main project. I have recently also joined uh, another, a new project led by Avilor called the Galileo Project, which is uh, also related to such as for extraterrestrial technology. What is it? Um, uh, so you mentioned that, uh, you know, a, a disappearing stars, um, you know, could potentially indicate uh, extraterrestrial uh, life or intelligence. Um, you know, why would it be that, uh, or what would it be about a disappearing star? Why would that necessarily indicate, you know, one possibility of uh, uh, extraterrestrial uh, life or intelligence? Well, um, the thinking behind it has been that it's, it would be a so-called impossible effect, something we know doesn't happen in nature or shouldn't happen in nature. Uh, a star is not just going to vanish like that from one day to another. And uh, the idea has simply been that if you have uh, something that looks like magic, may maybe it's so advanced technology that we cannot uh, separate between magic and, um, and technology in this case. And uh, so we kind of try to look for these impossible effects. And is this, um, you know, from what I understand in, in my, uh, you know, looking at, at the Vasco project, it seems like it's a relatively new area of study. Was it always um, uh, assumed that, like you mentioned at the start, that, uh, you know, a star would just, like stars wouldn't vanish? What, what was it that led yourself and others to, to start to look for something that perhaps was considered, you know, impossible um, um, for most of, of kind of astron astro astronomy and, and studying uh, throughout the, the history? Well, for me, it was uh, something that uh, I thought that just hit me when I was younger. I was an undergrad student. I was entertaining myself with writing some uh, short stories. Uh, and suddenly I kind of hit into the thought, can a star just vanish? And then I started, I started thinking, has anyone ever checked it? Because um, it's possible... Oh, sorry, my cat is singing. <laughs> I have a cat too. She's, uh, what's your cat's name? Freya. Freya, like the Nordic goddess. Yes, oh, back to the, <laughs> um, back to the, um, like, main idea. Well, it, it was just something that hit me while I was, uh, um, well, writing the short stories, and then I got, very curious that the idea stayed with me. And I kept thinking year, like, year after year, like, can a star vanish? I have to check this, I have to check this. And then it's what has happened. I started checking it once I found the tools, once I found the methods. It took me quite, it took me a few years before I had to do it. I was on my final year of my PhD studies. And then I did the first pilot study. And then what are the tools? I have no idea. How, like, do you just look up in the sky and count the stars and then look up the next day? Like, how, what are the actual uh, tools involved in, in finding uh, a star and then like finding the disappearing star kind of thing? So um, uh, the first uh, thing that really helped me was a catalog from the 1950s. It's, a, it's called the U.S. Naval Observatory Catalog. Well, the catalog is not from the 1950s. The images are from the 1950s. And then in 2000, someone used all these images from the 50s and constructed like, um, well, reconstructed um, uh, the positions of the stars. 
and their magnitudes, how, how bright they were. And I could use this catalog that was based on these 50s images and compare them to the uh, to catalogs that are done today of the same stars with this, on the same positions. So, I, so my goal was to see, is there a star in these old uh, images that was there that isn't there today? It sounds super easy conceptually to check because you think, okay, there's a list of objects here, there's a list of ob objects there. I thought it would be something fast, but in the end, it turns out to be a super technically difficult project to carry out. So, and, <laughs> um, you know, were, were those um, Naval Observatory, was that, that, that wasn't created with the purpose of looking for, for disappearing objects, that was just created with the purpose of cataloging. Um, so when you first, you know, you had this idea and then you, you proceeded to try to find disappearing stars, was there hesitation, you know, at the observatory, like when you were explaining what you were doing, was it a new idea for them or were they just um, happy to tell you? The only thing that happened was that whenever I exchanged emails with whoever was responsible, um, well, not, um, all the mirrors were going down, like mirrors to the websites. At the point, you couldn't enter any of the catalogs from Sweden. So, so that happened. I found it a bit funny. I think it was just a coincidence or something, or maybe I was too much trying to download too much data at the time. And they said, oh, well, what is happening here? Who is trying to do that? And it was me who was just trying to get all the data and images too much. So, you know, these images uh, that you were using were from the, the 1950s. Um, how do you, uh, when you're searching for a disappearing star disappearing, or just when, how do you confirm, um, I mean, I don't know how exactly they work, like confirm that it is something uh, actually in the sky versus human error. I mean, could somebody sneeze on one of them? Like, how does, how do you? Uh, well, that's a super, super tough one. Uh, and that requires a lot of work and, uh, and confirming is not so easy. So first one has to reject a lot of causes that one, like anything one can think of. And sometimes you can't reject something. You, you say, well, this looks real, but we can't know it's real because it could still be that someone maybe okay. When it comes to sneezing, I actually checked how, how sneezing looks under a microscope in an image. And there is not only, they don't look like stars, they have all kinds of shapes. Some are elongated, some are uh, rounder, so, so sneezing, I don't think it can be, but maybe something else could reproduce something that looks very, um, very, very real. But if one wants to look for a vanishing star, then uh, the best way is, is to find uh, a star that can be seen in several images on the same spot, like in the past, you would have, let's say, two or three images from the 50s, maybe two from the 70s and then nothing today. That is what we hope to find, and we're still looking for it. We haven't found an example yet. But multiple images would be the best way, and so that one can separate it from, let's say, a human error or sneezing or something like that. How did you, did you get some volunteers and just give them, you know, make them sniff pepper? How did you, or did you just sneeze on a, a, a slide? Because that's a fun part um, of science, right, that nobody ever talks about, is how do you test a sneeze on a under a microscope? Well, I, I didn't use a microscope myself, but I looked at the images from microscopes. There are papers where people have taken, uh, shown images like, this is how water droplets looks under a microscope, or this is how a sneeze, or not sneezing, let's say saliva looks under a microscope. 
So that's the easiest just to look what others have done and you can see the shapes, they, they show you the distributions of sizes of the triplets. Yeah. So the going back to the the um, the uh, not human error, but but the extraterrestrial possibilities behind potentially disappearing stars. So is it is it that you know what we think of as stars are some type of extraterrestrial technology um, and they're not disappearing, they're just moving to a, another location that's out of range? Or is it that, you know, they are stars, but they're being um, uh, like harvested somehow for energy? Or, or is there any thoughts as to what the otherworldly um, explanations could be as to uh, vanishing stars? Well, the explanations you gave are great, I think. Um, all of them work. Um, like explanations from a science fiction point of view. Um, another one could be like, let's say Dyson spheres, that, one, that someone has built a Dyson sphere around the star and these Dyson spheres are like big shells that are harvesting the energy uh, from the star and eventually it would dim out in the optical and start shining more in the infrared. Another way to watch it as, would be, let's say that a star isn't actually a star, but it's some type of beacon. And it's there kind of for some time, maybe from some centuries, you have this it's time to turn it up for what reason. And the star, the star-like object that was there is no longer there. It's also one of the possibilities. I whenever I think of Dyson Sphere, all I think about is is Star Trek the Next Generation, because they had a whole episode, I think, where the Enterprise was like trapped in a Dyson sphere, and that's all I remember from it. But I always have to think back to, to Star Trek. Uh, you know, one question I've seen I, Star Trek. You've never seen Star Trek? No. Not oh, a yeah. episode, only 10 or 15 minutes. Well, it was uh, growing up, I loved uh, The Next Generation. So, you know, with, with all my scientific knowledge, and it's very little comes from uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. So I'm still waiting to be able to travel faster than light. I don't know where warp speed is, but we're supposed to have it by now, I think, according to Star Trek. So start working on that. I'd like to travel faster than light if possible, please. I can't imagine what motion sickness I would experience in such a faster than light travel. <laughs> they seem fine on the TV show. They seem perfectly fine. So I have faith that, that scientists will be able to... Uh, to get it done the you know the, the more general question and i've talked about this with my interviews with um uh, jason rhodes and and um you know researchers from from nasa you know the, the one question i always ask um is you know how do you respond to you know some people have the the idea that um you know if uh, if if the, there's not necessarily a practical application for research per se, you know, it's best to focus on on research that you know you can demonstrate, you know, practical um, um, practical results for, and you know, why spend money uh, researching out in the stars when when there's problems here on Earth, that type of thing. And and I always ask, you know, what what is your 
response to this idea um, uh, people who say why spend time thinking about or researching or spend money researching the, the stars as opposed to you know whatever problems there might be uh, here on earth well i'm thinking that uh, most of the people who sometimes uh, complain on that money goes into this kind of fundamental research when they go up in the morning maybe they listen to some music in order to start the day in a good way. Maybe later they watch a movie when they come home in the night because it's a, a nice thing to do. Maybe they watch a beautiful painting because they feel good from watching this painting. And maybe they read um, some popular science magazines simply because they're curious. And I think one of the most fundamental things for us humans is to is to expand our knowledge, but also to uh, feed ourselves on a spiritual, emotional level, and also to always learn more. And um, one of the ways how we can do that is through basic research, because all of us like to uh, enjoy the fruits of uh, of, um, of a project that maybe wasn't very practical. Let's say, like you know, we we we're all love listening to the, the symphony orchestra that plays the Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, but it's also nothing practical. And still we need it to, uh, to grow as humans, in my opinion. Uh, and, and do you think that, that growing, um, growth as humans, growth as a society, um, like, do you think that will be necessary um, for us to to be able to recognize um, signs of extraterrestrial uh, life, whether it be um, you know through through work with vanishing stars or looking for technological signatures, like with the Galileo project. I mean, do you think that that right now we're necessarily we'd be uh, capable of recognizing uh, uh, extraterrestrial uh, signs of extraterrestrial uh, life? I mean, you mentioned that at the start. You know, at a certain point, uh, technology, if it's far enough advanced, can just appear as though it's magic. Um, could it even be, be so advanced it's, it's not necessarily detectable to us? Um, or is that, you know, I, I suppose, you know, could the ancient civilizations recognize like a jet if we assume they're 2,000 years ahead of us? I suppose they, they wouldn't know what it is, but they'd recognize it as something not of the natural world. Well, I personally think that we would, in many cases, we would not be able to recognize uh, ET. I think it would be something so, uh, maybe, maybe we would think that it's a natural phenomenon or we would confuse it with a natural phenomenon and we would study it like a natural phenomenon. We would assign it some properties that we can explain, explain with some basic astrophysical mechanism. And maybe it would be anything but natural. Um, I think that's for extremely advanced civilizations, that's the risk we run. So maybe. In, in order for us to recognize uh, a different civilization, they would have to be rather close to us in te technological development, I think. Does that, do you think that makes, that increases the, the risk? Because if you've got a 13 billion year old universe, I think if I'm getting that correct, or however, however old it is, that's a lot of time for um, civilizations to, you know, have come before us, 
and to come after, you know, to be on their way up now. Um, do you think like the likelihood of, of an alien civilization being relatively close to us technologically, um, that seems like just another uh, challenge is because there's so much time for civilizations to come and advance far past us. That's completely true. And uh, right now there are not enough constraints in order to even guess how many um, civilizations with the same type of development as us uh, are out there. I just know that there are very, very many stars in the universe and many, many galaxies and thus many planets. And I believe that there is a very good likelihood for that to have a lot of civilizations out there. But that's my feeling, and I might be totally wrong, but it's just a guess, a speculation. It's, it's fun thinking about this type of stuff. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of it. It's fun to think about, you know, some, uh, it's fun to consider these, these questions, right? And I think it goes back to what you said about, it's like contemplating great music or, or, or you know, it gives a, an extra reason to, to get up and enjoy the days and think about kind of these really cool, really cool and interesting questions. And then you bring the scientific aspect to it, right? You're able to think about these things in a far more scientific way than I am. I just think, what if, you know, Vulcans are flying around or something? Well, I think all of us are approaching actually the same question. What is equally important to all of us? Who am I and why am I here? Searching for it is one way of answering this question. Trying to understand my, my place in this universe. Uh, and... Uh, I think everyone tries to do it in different ways. An artist will do one way of um, searching for this question, uh, a priest another way, and an astronomer in a third way, in the data-driven way, probably. But maybe many of us are approaching it uh, with the tools we are given. Uh, that's interesting um, you know, point to bring up. And, you know, you're also involved with... Um, the Galileo project, uh, headed by by Dr. Avi Loeb, um, but just the and I, I actually talked about this uh, on an interview I did yesterday on the podcast. Um, uh, it was a, a scholar from she her area of research was um, the ancient world, Greece, Rome, but you know it seems like in twenty twenty one in in modern society there's a real um, there's like rigid lines sometimes between science and art and religion. And uh, it's all kind of, but if you look at the past, I mean, Galileo was a scientist. He was also an artist. He was also, uh, you know, and in the ancient world, there was almost no distinctions between these things. Um, I guess, do you think that, you know, some of these types of questions and type of, of research they do lend themselves to, to obviously their scientific inquiries, but they're also can lend them, you know, to art. Um, they, they ask religious questions in some cases. Um, I guess just my question is, you know, do you see a benefit of, of trying to, you know, bring these worlds together, science, art, religion, philosophy, um, and do you think that, that can, they can complement each other as opposed to kind of these divisions? Absolutely. And I think that these uh, topics should be going together. I myself love playing music. Uh, I love playing chamber music. It's one of my big passions. And uh, 
for me, I always need to do both science and music at the same time in order to be productive. And I know that the periods when I don't play music, I'm also not productive in science. I think that there's some type of completeness uh, that comes when you pursue different things. Um, and uh, yes, I think that in many ways, I, I sometimes am wondering, should we really be working eight hours per day on research? Maybe it's enough with four hours per day and then we should be paid for four hours per day doing other things like drawing, playing music and all the stuff. I think in my ideal utopia, it would be something like that. And uh, I'm, I'm obviously this is only the type of thing that can be be uh, guessed at. But if there were, if there are uh, civilizations around uh, uh, other stars, um, you know, to what extent do you think that they would be considering the same type of questions that we are? And are they out there searching for us, especially if they're relatively at the same stage technologically as we are, or? Do you think that every civilization will will kind of evolve differently and maybe ask different questions, or do you think ultimately, for in this universe, we we might all be asking the same type of questions? I think yeah, the latter that everyone asking the same type of questions. I think it's something fundamental. I bet that even my cat asks that question. I don't. I have a cat. I think she just asks, "Where's my food?" And that's about as far as she is concerned with the uh, <laughs> with the universe. Is the food dish full? But yeah, I've always wondered that because the, the idea of like uh, how other civilizations uh, form and whether we could find them, because uh, I've heard scientists uh, suggest that there'd probably be a great, if there were extraterrestrial life, there'd be a great diversity of life and it would be, um, it'd probably be very, very diverse in appearance and, and abilities. But I wonder because like ultimately, uh, uh, if the physics presumably are the same throughout the universe, I mean, that seems like it puts some pretty significant constraints on what could evolve successfully. Like you would need, you know, marine biology, marine life perhaps could evolve on another planet and be intelligent, but it wouldn't be able to, to build rockets underwater type of thing. I don't know. It just seems that probably most life will follow a similar template to ours, at least intelligent life, I would think. I am afraid that I don't have enough knowledge to uh, answer on this question, but I have a feeling of that there are some things that are fundamental all over the universe. And for example, I will say life, the concepts of life and death probably are the same over the whole universe. That would be my guess. So if I would try to communicate with another civilization, I would try to actually use these fundamental concepts rather than anything else. That's interesting. I've never... That's an interesting uh, uh, point because, from from my understanding, um, you know, when, when I've seen other or read other uh, books or topics on this idea of communicating with extraterrestrial life, the emphasis always seems to be on on math as uh, a fundamental way to communicate. Um, but I like what you said that you know. The idea of uh, not so much communicating with math, but you know, life and death, and these these more fundamental, I guess, philosophical ideas as a way to communicate with extraterrestrial intelligences. That's something that's really cool. I wonder if they must, like you said, they. It's hard to imagine a, a biological life form that doesn't have some understanding of mortality and and life and death and and exactly. what that means. 
I think even a, a robotic like form would have an understanding of it because it has evolved from something once where it existed. Do you so think I that? Think, yeah. Oh, sorry. Do you think that's more likely? Um, that you know, if for example, uh, whether it be the Vanishing Stars or the Galileo Project, that do you think it'd be more likely that we would discover artificial robotic uh, signs of intelligence, or do you think it would actually be be biological? I don't know. I'm hoping for biological. I really wouldn't feel comfortable discovering that we are visited by aliens from now and then and all of them are robotic life forms and we start feeling a little bit distressed. I don't know why, it's probably my prejudices, I think. Well, would it be, would it be, that strikes me as like evidence of some type of great filter. If we're, if we're visited by robotic life that was created by biological life that's no longer existing, I mean, what does that say about our chances to exist if, you know, Exactly. That's a scary thought. This has got pretty dark for uh, uh, my podcast talking about, but yeah, it's, it's very, one of those things that's, that's fun to talk about, or could it just be, um, you know, a, a alien uh, junk and trash? I think I listened to a podcast that you were on where you mentioned um you know, it, we, we could just find, you know, the alien version of a Coca-Cola bottle type of thing. Like, and that I think would be the hardest thing to recognize. Is it techno technological and signs of extraterrestrial intelligence or is it something natural if it is a, a discarded piece of, of alien civilization? Mm. Um, yes, uh, well, I guess the, what one would hope for is that if one would find something like that, eventually one should go there and pick up the thing somehow and study it in a laboratory. Of course, it's not going to be easy considering how many pieces of um, the millions of pieces of space, space debris that are now in orbit around Earth. How much, how much is there uh, floating around millions, Earth right now? Millions of the small of, of centimeter size. It's really sad. And with the Starlink uh, project, it's going to be even worse. So I'm going to look in the data from the 1950s. I think that if we find something in the data from 1950s, then we have a good case. It's easier to look in these things where you don't have, or in this old place where you don't have any human contamination yet. How, how small um, can an object be, or, or how large does an object need to be uh, for us to be able to detect it? You mentioned there's millions of centimeter, like could there be, uh, if an alien technology or even human or whatever it is, is small enough, could it just escape detection for? If it's small enough, it escapes detection, but I saw actually several papers calculating this and they were showing that uh, an object that just is as small as 10 centimeters in size, but it is very reflective of metal or mirror or glass, we are gonna see a glint in our, in, uh, in our observations, a very short glint of half a second. So if there's an alien Coke bottle, we hope to find it. <laughs> well, you'd hope it'd be bigger than 10 centimeters at the very least. When you are researching like uh, uh, something new or, or cutting edge or this, this new idea of vanishing stars or extraterrestrial technological signatures, like do you find um, in some ways it's been helpful to be able to um, you know, look at things through, through fresh eyes and 
because it can be, I would imagine it can be easy in science and in, in anything, right, to, to kind of get trapped by, you know, previous orthodoxies, as opposed to new ideas and new thoughts, and even something like, uh, what was uh, the, the meteor that was, um, that Dr. Loeb thought might be signs of uh, uh, alien? Oh, wow, wow. There we go. Yeah. Like, uh, it, can it be dangerous in science? And this is true for Freemasonry too, or anything for any organization to get so caught up in orthodoxy, it doesn't always look at new ideas or new possibilities. Uh, absolutely. And I think that is why I admire so much of uh, the, the work of Avi, because he, he breaks this, uh, the taboos that are there. And he asked the questions that everyone wants to ask, but nobody dares to. And uh, he points out like important examples. And uh, I think this is very, very important in order to do any type of progress, because I think most scientists are quite kind of stuck. Even if you would drag E.T. Uh, in front of them and bring E.T. and let them interview E.T., they still wouldn't believe it's E.T. So uh, I think that th there is this uh, sensation that people simply are, they are, it's called SETI, Searches for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, because I think many are stuck in this thing of that you need to keep searching. It has to be searches in order to be, in order to be serious. It needs to yield zero results in order to be serious. And I, I think there is some type of dogma uh, here that serious SETI research should always, or always leads to zero results. And I don't think it's because people do it consciously, but I think it's a subconscious behavior, a fear of finding something, because if you find something and you're wrong, it's embarrassing. Nobody wants to feel embarrassed about being wrong with a result. So there's all this cultural stigma around this. I, and so do you think that, because that is, that is definitely a, a challenge yeah, uh, that Freemasonry, I think, is, is facing. I think almost every organization is facing that. You know, the the most famous Masonic quote is, uh, you know, that's not how we did it, is what all the old guys say about the young guys coming through, right? Do you think, um, do you think that in the case of, well, it could be Dr. Lowe, it could be, it could be anybody, like, do you think that that's a personality thing or or how do you think individuals, if they want to, kind of ask the um, unusual questions or, or go in unusual ways uh, or kind of challenge some orthodoxies. Um, like how, how do you think uh, they go about it? Do you think some people are just naturally more able to do that or is it a matter of finding the thing you're passionate about? Or I guess what would you say to anybody who wants to maybe explore some, some new or challenging uh, or unorthodox areas? Well, um... I think um, one needs to prepare to be prepared on working alone quite, quite a lot of the time. Because once one starts to, this is from my experience, um, once one starts to work on these things, uh, a lot of, uh, for instance, you, you might have a supervisor that will tell you, oh, if you're going that direction, everyone, you, you will lose your credibility. Uh, these things are quite common that someone will say, you shouldn't go in that direction. and they, they will start warning you, like, if you go on on this research, on this research you will later have no job. You know, people always like scaring you. So the question is, how passionate are you about the topic? 
because if you are if your goal is to become like become professor maybe that is not a very good thing to do to challenge orthodoxy however if you are so curious that it wins over everything else then you will go on in that direction even if you get a lot of uh, setbacks coming from your colleagues and friends because maybe you believe that this is important and you will continue in that direction you simply because you feel that this is an important question and I'm curious and I need to answer that. So I think this is a very individual thing. It depends on um, the type of personality one has and how curious one is, um, how long one can endure also this social isolation that might come with it. And then um, if, uh, do you think that you know, the, the first person kind of out the gate is always the one who takes a lot of the, the, the attacks and the blows. Um, but, you know, over time um, of, of doing this research and, and even if it does start out alone, it does seem like if the person knows what they're talking about and, and if they have um, some successes or there's, they're able to bring more and more people on board over time. I mean, you're seeing that with a lot of these questions now that, you know, 20, 30, 20 years ago were considered unorthodox that are now gaining more mainstream attention and, and mainstream traction and uh, mainstream uh, even funding. I think that SETI and um, UFO research, two, two very different things, but both of these things are going to become mainstream in 10 years. I think it just needs time and you need more like inspiring figures like Avi who dare to, to do this step and challenge the society because others will follow simply because it helped, it helped me to see like the wonderful work that is being done by other people in order to dare to do SETI research myself. Like I needed this little push, push in the beginning and then I got into SETI. I dare to. So... Yeah. And then, you know, maybe uh, the, the next group coming up, um, you know, we'll see you and then that you'll be the push for the next group to come through and the next group to come through. Right. I think that's that's a, a that's the hope with, I think, almost anything um, is, you know, the first person, you know, somebody takes a risk, but other people follow behind when they see that it's it's um, as you said. And that's the thing too, like passion is such a strong motivator, not just for the initial person doing it, but, but for those from behind, like you can tell with yourself, right? Your, your passion for, um, you know, exploring the, these questions about can a star vanish, right? I don't know how many people asked that question before you, but I'm sure many people are asking it uh, after you. I never even would have thought of the question before seeing some of your work. So yeah, I think that passion is such an important part of it. Um, the more passionate you are about something, the more people will be drawn to it. Um, I think one more thing that could help um, just like in order to make it easier would be if one actually, uh, nowadays it's very common that many astronomers, professional astronomers spend a lot of time on let's say Facebook and Twitter. And I think these two, like these social media have a tendency of clustering opinions and clustering certain opinions and making them seem overrepresented relative to what they actually are. And I think sometimes um, it would probably make a more free environment if we would have less science and social media, I think. I think that 
the social medias have a tendency of creating some type of orthodoxy in thinking. And I don't think it's a good and beneficial thing. So I hope this is something that we will be able to um, move away from like over time. Do you think that that's the, the, the current applications or the medium itself? Like, do you think that there's, because um, I agree with you, I think social media, there's a lot of problems with, with you know, people forming their own little towers and little groups um, and not seeing a lot of communication between those groups over time. Do you think that it's possible for social media to, to solve those problems? Or do you think this the nature of the medium is those problems will always uh, exist? Because I struggle with that with the podcast and with Freemasonry is you want to promote it on social media, but you don't then want to get pigeonholed into one specific group that you can't kind of break out of. I think that uh, the problem of social media nowadays is they are like, the, um, like they are too wild. There are no rules. People can write any type of attacks on other, they can do any type of attacks on other individuals. You can write nasty things. In reality, you cannot go to your colleague and, um, and punch them in the face or something, but on social media, they all do these things. And uh, unless we regulate social media with really, really strong rules and how in behavior, um, we are going to keep having that problem. And I think it's also it's a bad, bad thing for science that we have them. So I, I really hope that social media will, or, or that there will be many more rules and restrictions and regulations of social media 10 years in the future in order to avoid all this um, um, mob behavior that can be stalling in certain scientific progress. I agree completely with that. Um... For anybody who is uh, interested in, um, you know, learning more about uh, your work, um, you know, where, where can they, they find more about your projects and what you're working on um, and any of your findings, uh, all um, that? We, good have a, we have a web page with the Vasco project. It's not super updated. Um, it's called Vasco site. Let me send you the link. We also have a citizen science project that I... I wish I would uh, be able to tell more about it. Uh, citizen science project that we do together with uh, amateur astronomy associations, uh, researchers and students in Nigeria, Algeria and Cameroon, uh, where actually where we are working on uh, finding ET together. So I think this is the first and only SETI project done with uh, African countries. That's very cool. So uh, I hope that even if, we, even if we fail with our scientific goal, I hope that uh, Vasco will be able to um, inspire many youngsters into astronomy, especially in countries that are not uh, so uh, economically uh, privileged. So the hope is to bring some of the SETI research to them and bring them my dream about finding it. And I think that's uh, a great place to to leave it, thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast. Um, truly appreciate it. And I wish you the best of luck. And, you know, if you do find ET, um, uh, hopefully we can be back on the podcast to, to talk about it. But even if not, I'm sure you're absolutely right. Um, you know, I'm sure that, that the work is inspiring uh, many people to uh, follow their own passions, whatever they may be, but definitely astronomy um, and asking some of these questions that are unorthodox, but important. So thank you so much for being here. See you. Thank you.